This is from John 20, 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Well, like I said, we're in the, the last week of a series that we started way back in January in the book of 1 Peter, but also going uh, through some other books of the Bible. And tonight we're going to talk about what Colby just read and belief under the shadow of doubt. Let's pray together and we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, our faith is weak. We are weak. We feel pushed around by life and our thoughts and our feelings. There are days, there's hours, there's seasons when we don't feel like we have what it takes to get by. And we see you in this passage. But I pray you will, through your Holy Spirit tonight, help our souls and our hearts to see you in the way that you love us in those moments and care for us in those moments. I pray particularly for friends of mine who know doubt as an acquaintance, a close friend, something that's always with them, and I pray that you would bring hope to them. I pray that they would feel seen and loved and that you would give their feet traction tonight. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this Thomas that we just read about was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So he's one of those men who had left uh, his family, his livelihood, had left everything. He was one of those disciples. You've probably heard the stories earlier in the Gospels. Jesus looked at this man one day and said, come and follow me. And he left those things and he went and he followed Jesus and he lived with Jesus for those three years prior to what is written down in John chapter 20. You juniors have been around three years, right out about three years now. You know how a lifetime can get packed into three short years. Think back to August of 2020 and how much has happened in three short years. How much you've changed, how much you've grown or heard, how friendships are so different just in three years. People that you thought would be best friends and you're not friends with them anymore. People that you didn't think would be friends and you're best friends with them. A lifetime can get packed into three years. A lifetime got packed into Thomas's three years with Jesus. And that's why it's so devastating and traumatizing with what Thomas had been through the week or two before this passage. These events happened. And traumatized is the right word for it. Uh, the things that Thomas went through in the days leading up to this would require... 10 lifetimes of therapy to begin to unpack what he had seen and heard and witnessed and experienced. It was really a triple whammy. 
he was shell-shocked when we encounter him in this passage. This man was shell-shocked. Have you ever seen pictures of people the morning after disaster ruined everything that they had? The earthquakes in Turkey last fall, the tornadoes in Mississippi this spring, did you see any of those pictures of somebody sitting on the rubble of their lives, shell-shocked? Deer in the headlights. That's Thomas. What had happened? Well, it was the triple whammy of trauma. One of his closest friends, one of his closest friends had been exposed to be a fraud. Somebody who betrayed not just Jesus, but all of his other friends of the disciples. Judas. We think of Judas as automatically bad and negative. Remember, at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, None of them knew who he was talking about. They weren't side-eyeing Judas. Oh, yeah, I always thought something was up with that guy. They all thought it was themselves. Judas was a close friend. Imagine one of your friends is just exposed to be someone fundamentally different than what you always thought there would be. What questions would you be asking? How did I not see this coming? Could I have done something to stop this? How well do I know any of my friends? That's traumatizing, just that. And the senselessness of it, too. You've heard those stories of people who, like, get shot at the gas station going to pay for gas, and they got shot for their wallet, and what was in their wallet was, like, $17, and everybody says, how senseless. Somebody lost their lives for $17. And Thomas and all the other disciples are certainly asking questions like that, Jesus lost his life for 30 bucks. This man cut down at the prime of his ministry and the prime of his life seemingly for 30 bucks that my friend sold him out for. That's trauma. And then there's the course of events that Judas' betrayal set, the ripple effects that that set that began to spiral out of control very quickly. Talk about something escalating quickly. From Judas selling out Jesus to Jesus being arrested, put on a show trial, tortured, given the death penalty, and unceremoniously executed, we're just talking 48, uh, we're really actually talking 24 hours. Talk about things escalating quickly. Imagine being one of his followers when with each development, you're like, no way, no way. If anybody could talk himself out of an arrest, it's Jesus. If anybody could preach the truth in a sham trial and show everybody else to be the fool, it's Jesus. Of course he's going to beat these charges. And every page of that story gets worse and worse and worse. And worst of all, Thomas, being a disciple of Jesus, knew way too well that if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, which all the disciples thought Jesus had been exposed to. Remember Luke 24, there's some disciples um, after the crucifixion of Jesus. They don't know that he's been raised up from the dead and they're on their walk to uh, a neighboring city to Emmaus and they're discussing what had gone down in Jerusalem and Jesus, who they do not recognize, appears to them and walks with them and he says, what are you all talking about? Why are you so sad? And they said, Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happening? 
the one that we had thought was the Messiah was crucified. In other words, the guy we used to think was saving us from our sins, but has now been exposed as nothing. That's a trauma. Talk about the despair of the most hope you've ever had in your life, immediately followed by the worst despair that you've ever had and the worst hopelessness that you've ever had in your entire life. And the questions that he's asking with that, how naive was I? How did I fall for this? Well, John goes on and he says that Thomas, who was one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. That very first verse. When Jesus appeared to him is what he's talking about. When the resurrected Jesus appeared to the disciples. Now, imagine, we take that for granted because we know the end of the story. But these men saw their Jesus limp on a cross with eyes that were glossed over in death. You ever seen a dead animal? Do you know what death looks like? They saw that. They were there. They were forced to look at it in its ugliest face the whole time. So that's, that's, that's why it could be unbelievable, perhaps, for them to believe that he had raised up. I want to just step to the side for a second and, and talk to some of you who may not be as familiar with Christianity or the gospel or the Bible and just make a side point here that the, the way that the Bible talks about the resurrection of Jesus is not God said this happened and y'all take his word for it because God said it. The way that the Bible talks about the resurrection of Jesus is facts and history and evidence and testimony and eyewitness accounts and lots of encouragements to go ask other people. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw the resurrected Jesus, people who knew him. You're not fooling anybody. So the Bible gives us the receipts. So to deny the resurrection of Jesus creates a mighty large historical problem for you to have to solve. How do you explain all this? How do you explain all these accounts, independent of one another? How do you explain people out of nowhere, all of a sudden getting their throat slit and getting crucified themselves because they're so convinced this man raised from the dead? How do they keep that secret? How do hundreds of people always remain on the same page? There's no group me. Hey, guys, get your story straight. If someone says this, you say that. If they say this, you say that. How does that happen? That's a historical problem um, that's laid at the feet of those who deny the resurrection of Jesus. And the crux of the gospel, the reason I'm making a point about this is all of Christianity stands on the pillar of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, not the teaching of Jesus. Christianity falls apart, and the Bible says this all falls apart if he's not been raised from the dead in his body, if these receipts are frauds, nothing else makes any sense or matters at all, including the teaching of Jesus. To think that Christianity is about the teachings of Jesus, um, Tim Keller says, teaching makes Christianity all about you. 
You've got to go implement what you heard Jesus teach. You've got to go do it. You've got to go figure out how to apply it to your life. You've got to improve how you're obeying it. You've got to perfect his teachings. You've got to internalize his teachings. See how if you make Christianity all about the teachings of Jesus, you make it all about you and all about your performance and all about how well you've done today or this week or this semester with God. It's legalism. It will suffocate your soul. It'll make you hate God. That's orphan religion. Christianity stands on the pillar of the person of Jesus Christ and the fact that he rose up in victory over death and the thing that causes death, which is sin. The proof that Jesus is superior to your sins is that he raised from the dead. The proof that Jesus is superior to the power of death is that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you see how it all hangs on that? This is why the Bible is so adamant. John, this same John in his letter in 1 John says, we saw this Jesus, we touched this Jesus, we walked with this Jesus. I didn't see him in a dream, I didn't feel a warm, fuzzy feeling, I ate breakfast with him. Your hopes hang on whether this Jesus raised from the grave or not. And our religion means absolutely nothing if he didn't. So Thomas was not with the others when the resurrected Jesus appeared. And so the disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. I'm in verse 25 now. We have seen the Lord. Well, what would, what would someone's natural response to that be? Okay, here's the scene. It's like if Jesus showed up in person here tonight and y'all saw him, but one of your friends wasn't here, and you get back later, uh, later on tonight or later next week, and they're like, dude, we saw Jesus. I touched him. I saw him. I was conv- it was him. And you're like, okay, well, I want to see him too. Where is he? And you're like, I, we don't know. I don't know where he came from, and I don't know where he went to. And you're like, okay. So you saw Jesus, but you don't know where he came from, and you don't know where he's going, and you can't take me to him, so nobody else can see Jesus. Is that what you're saying? That's the normal thought process. It's probably Thomas's thought process, too. So then Thomas might be thinking, well, guys, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm happy for you. I'm happy that's worked out for you. I'm glad you're able to believe, but I can't. I'm not able to believe because I wasn't there. I didn't see him. And what would you think in that scenario that your friend who died a few days ago, you were at the funeral, is now up and walking around. Would you just take their word for it? There's a lot of things you can take your friend's word for. Like, hey, the professor said this is gonna be on the test, study for it. I would take my friend's word at that for sure. But the friend whose funeral we went to last week showed up at my house last night, I wouldn't take their word for that. That's a bridge too far for me. It was a bridge too far for Thomas. Thomas would say, I just can't muster that kind of faith. So Thomas replies, well, unless I see the nail marks in Jesus' hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I can't, I will not believe. Hear this and look down at your page and look exactly what Thomas says. Thomas says, 
unless these things happen, I will not believe. Thomas does not say, unless these things happen, I cannot believe. We like to think of doubt as an emotion, like a disease, like the flu that you catch. It, it afflicts you. We're a passive victim of it. It just it kind of comes upon you, and we're just along for the ride. And I want to be clear here. Doubts can absolutely afflict you. Some of you feel that a lot. They intrude in your mind. They don't ask permission, and they wreak havoc in your mind, your soul, your heart, your emotions. So... That's true, but doubt is not an emotion. Doubt's not a disease that happens to us. Hear me. Doubt is a decision. It's subtle, that's why we miss it, but it is a decision. Doubt is an action. And just like any other action, the more you do it, the more natural it feels the next time, the bigger the muscle memory gets, the easier it is, and the more you just don't even realize it over time. The early stages of doubt, you're, you're aware of it. I, I'm struggling with doubt. Keep drifting in that. A few months later, you're not going to be struggling with anything. You're just like, I just don't believe this stuff. I can't. And because doubt is an action, we're not merely victims of doubt. We're active participants with our doubts. I know this is countercultural to hear. I know this might be new. I know it might not sit well with some of you. But we're going to see Jesus unfold this in the next few minutes as we look at the next few verses. But doubt's a decision. Doubt is an action verb. We're active participants in it, not merely passive victims of it. It's not so much I cannot believe, but I will not believe. <coughs> Why does Thomas say this, though? Why might Thomas say this? Maybe for this reason. I bet this will resonate with many of you. Maybe because doubt and despair, even for apostles and disciples, feel so familiar and so comfortable that it's just easier to remain in it than to fight out of it. Even for the 12 disciples, even for the most mature in this room, the closest to Jesus, you might say, Maybe because doubt and despair and darkness just feel so easy to hold on to and hope is so hard to muster. I don't know if you know the name Esau Macaulay. He's a professor and a theologian and an author. The New York Times asks him every Christmas and every Easter to write a column in the New York Times about those holidays. And he wrote a, a column a few weeks ago for Easter about hope. And he said this in the introduction. He said, I've never been a big fan of hope. It's a demanding emotion that insists on changing you. Hope pulls you out of yourself and into the world, forcing you to believe that more is possible. Other emotions, he's, he says, for an example, hate hates much, as a much less insistent master. It asks you only to loathe. It's quite happy to have you to itself and doesn't ask you to go anywhere. Lots of emotions are that way resentment or cynicism or despair, they're easy emotions because they don't ask anything of us. It's just basically interlock your fingers, put your hands up, and enjoy the current. There's no effort required at all. 
to be in doubt or in despair or resentment or cynicism or hate. It asks nothing of you. Hope, hope insists that you get up off the, on your feet and it invites you to start taking more seriously the promises of a serious and real God and a serious and real resurrection. Hope pulls you up and it asks you to lean into the pain of believing that more is possible because God is God. And hope is scary and hope is painful and hope is extremely taxing to choose to believe when it's so easy just to not believe. Hope is painfully hard. And that's also why hope is exhausting and why doubt can be so enticing to us because it's comfortable. Macaulay goes on, he calls, uh, he says that doubts are attractive because of the safety and dependability of hopelessness. That comfortable emotion that asks nothing of you just leaves you as you are and says, hey, you can come here and you can chill. I don't need anything from you. He goes on and says this. He says, isn't it easier to believe that everyone who loves us has some secret agenda? Don't you feel more protected when you believe there's a dark motivation behind other people in their relationship with you? That racism will forever block the creation of what Martin Luther King Jr. called that beloved community? That the gun lobby will always overwhelm every attempt at reform? That poverty is a fact of human existence? Despair allows us to give up our resistance and rest a while. The problem is you grow so accustomed to the rest, we grow lazy in it. And we drift to a point where we feel like our doubts are actually legitimate and our arguments hold water. And we really do see through the Bible and the resurrection didn't happen. The Bible's filled with contradictions. And these things that are easily explained um, become plausible to us because we're so familiar with them. I would add to his examples. Isn't it easier to believe that the people who made decisions about the internships that you applied to, the people who made decisions about arch retreat, or the sorority that you rushed in the fall, or RUF, that those people always just pick their favorites, and because you didn't make the cut, you're not one of them, People like you are invisible to them. Nobody sees you. Nobody hears you. Why did I even apply? Why did I even rush? I knew it would go this way. Isn't that so easy to believe? To savor that little morsel. I feel it, y'all. I mean, I'm not in any of those situations, but I apply for positions. I apply for roles within my world of RUF, and my track record is not great. I don't get a lot of those. And you know where my mind goes first? This. It's so easy. You know it's hard? I think they do see me, and I think they do know me, and I think they do love me, and I think they do value me. And maybe I wasn't right for that role for reasons I know or reasons I don't know. You know it's hard to hold on to? You know it's hard to fight for and to push into? Not a hair can fall from my head without the Father in heaven who knows me and loves me allowing it. That's hard. Anybody with a body can give up and drift into the doubt and the despair and coddling in those ways. 
But it takes a ferocious faith and hope to take God at his word in the face of evidence that might speak to the contrary of that. Is it easier to believe that God would never give a mediocre person like you a bright future? That he would actually show up in your life? You don't feel as spiritual as all your friends. You don't know as much about the Bible. You feel like half in, half out. Is it easier for to believe Jesus would never have anything to do with a person like me than to believe God said he came for the unrighteous, not the righteous, for the sick, not the healthy, that God favors the poor in spirit, not the rich in spirit, those who are hungry for him, not those who feel like they sit on the spiritual mountaintop all the time. What's harder? Hope rings the bell and waves the flag and says, get up, fight, live your life. Believe. And it's very hard. So Thomas isn't at full despair yet. Thomas isn't in full doubting mode. He hasn't just completely given up. I would say hope is on life support for Thomas. Why would I say hope is on life support and that he's not fully, completely given up? Here's why. Look at this. Look at what evidence Thomas wants to see. Unless I see the resurrected Jesus, that's not what he asked for. That's who the disciples said they saw. Thomas doesn't say, I want to see the resurrected Jesus too. Thomas says, I want to see the holes in his hands and the laceration on his side. And I want to put my finger where those nails were. And I want to put my hand in his side. That's the proof that Thomas asked for. Fleming Rutledge, another author, she says, surely it's of the utmost importance that the sign demanded by Thomas was to touch the marks of Jesus' wounds. It was not the sign of his glory that gave proof, but the sign of his suffering. Thomas didn't want to see any resurrected Jesus except the crucified Jesus. Because Thomas knew that all of his hopes his reconciliation to God, the the, the potential to be a friend of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, the potential to be resurrected, all hung on, did he stand in my place on that cross or not? Thomas has no patience for magic tricks. Oh my gosh, that was cool, Jesus. Thomas has to see the sacrifice for Thomas resurrected because that's the proof that the sacrifice was acceptable, that the sacrifice satisfied what God needed for you to be made whole, for you to be a friend of his again. And Thomas still wanted to see that, and that's why I'd say hope is on life support. It wasn't dead. This passage also asks another interesting question of us. it, It asks you this. Let me ask you this directly. How much does a resurrected Jesus mess with your doubts when he walks through the door and starts talking to you. If you were Thomas and you were tormented with nights and nights of doubt about this very thing, why can't I believe this? All my friends said they saw him. Why don't I have enough faith to just embrace this? He's not sleeping at all. 
How much does it mess with Thomas when that Jesus, like literally walks through the wall, I would say comes through the door, walks through the wall and starts talking to you? That's what John says. A week later, a week later, seven sleepless nights, seven never-ending days of Thomas stuck in the torment of his head. Why can't I believe? Do any of you feel like that? I know it's probably not everybody in the room. Do any of you feel doubt like that? No hope. You agonize over why is my faith so weak? Why do I trip every step I seem to take forward? I know there's some of you in this room. And I know many of you have friends that way. And I know some people listening to the podcast later absolutely feel that way. Your friends seem to see Jesus. They talk about seeing him. They talk about this vibrant relationship all the time. And you so want that for you. But you can't seem to get it no matter what. Your heart's hungry. You're panting for a sight of Jesus' smile towards you but you can't see it. And you can't settle and you won't settle for cheap evidence. I've told y'all before, um, I lived two years like that. It was the second two, or it was the last two years of my RUF internship here. And so I would spend my days sitting across the table from students who genuinely I was encouraging out of their doubts. And I believed the gospel for them. As soon as they got up and my thoughts came back, I would agonize. Every Sunday in church was agonizing. Because I didn't know if this gospel was for me or not. Am I utterly hopeless? Am I deceived? Why can't I get my life together? Why can't I get my act together? Why can't, I mean, my job is part-time to study the Bible. I can convince other people that this is true. Why can't I convince me that this matters to me, that he loves me? Two years. Like Thomas. Those two years, it was like I was sitting on the rubble of my life. I've told some of you all this. Some of you all, I sent you this playlist. So depressing. My playlist included fun little pick-me-ups like these titles. Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. Poor Sinner Dejected with Fear. John Newton's Decide This Doubt for Me. The books on my coffee table were God in the Dark and a book called Deserted by God and a book called Spiritual Depression. I know there's some other people out there, and that's you. For some of you, that will be you in the next year or two. It will not be the end of your faith, but it will test your faith. A week later, Jesus came. What do you think he's going to say? Thomas, can we talk real quick? Can you come with me into the side room? Does he say, Thomas, I gave you everything I had. I told you I would raise from the dead, Thomas. Why don't you believe? What Jesus says 
And if you wonder what he would say to you, he says, peace be with you. Peace. Peace was the last thing Thomas expected from Jesus with how little Thomas trusted Jesus. And then he turns to Thomas, verse 24, and he says, Thomas has not told Jesus, Jesus, I need to see the marks, the wounds. Jesus says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out with your hand and put it into my side. And I think that's as if to say, if, if Jesus were to grab you by the shoulders and kind of, maybe he's taller than you, maybe he's shorter, I don't know, but he kind of stoops down a little bit so you're eye to eye and he looks into your soul. And he says, oh, beloved Thomas, I've heard every cry. You know when Jesus says he'll leave the 99 sheep to go chase the one? That's this. There was a room full of apostles that Jesus was with. Who do you want to talk to first? The doubter. The faithless. The weak. If Christianity is about teaching, that's the last person you talk to. These guys got it. If Christianity hangs on the resurrection of the Son of God, God goes to the weak first, the hopeless, the helpless. And he says, peace, be still. I'm alive. Ta-da. It was all true. <laughs> it was all true. You don't have to doubt, Thomas. You don't have to doubt. And I just want you to note how gentle Jesus is with a scared, doubting, weak faith disciple, an apostle like Thomas. Thomas Brooks, an old Puritan writer, said, weak saints are just as much united to Jesus, just as much justified in Jesus, just as much reconciled by Jesus, just as much pardoned by Jesus as the strongest saint. The weakest Christian in this room, Jesus loves you just as much as the strongest Christian in this room. But while Jesus is gentle with doubters, he is not a patsy. You can look up that word if you don't know what it means. Jesus is not, oh, Thomas is weak and frail and fragile. I really don't want to step on his toes. I love how Jesus always tells the truth, even in an inconvenient moment. To a doubter, would you say this to your friend? If you have a doubting friend right now, a doubting roommate, is it just empathy? Or do you ever say, stop doubting. Stop disbelieving. Start believing. Some of you hear that and you think, oh, Ben, what a Sherlock moment. Oh, that's so easy. Just stop doubting. It's like telling a sinner, just stop sinning. Some of you are thinking that right now. Oh, easier said than done, Ben. Easier said than done, Jesus. He said it, not me. And I want to remind you where we started. You're still thinking about doubt like an emotion that attack, like you're a passive victim. No, you're making decisions. You might not be consciously aware of the decisions you're making because they're, they're so automatic, so deeply entrenched, they're happening in the background now, but you are deciding to believe an alternate belief. And your faith in that is left no room for your faith in Jesus. Jesus says to Thomas straight up, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. It's an invitation to hope. 
It's an invitation to believe that more is possible because God is God. Anybody, any of you in this room who have wrestled through a season of doubt and have survived, you know that this is true. This isn't superficial or simplistic to you. You know that this is profound. You know it's true. I know this is true. Because for every doubter, there comes a point where you have to decide, who am I going to listen to? And what's true? I would be there on the couch some nights listening to these songs that were smuggling in gospel hope. And I had decisions to make many of those nights. Is Jesus for helpless sinners or is he against helpless sinners? And I had to make a decision. It feels like he's against me because I haven't felt his presence in months. But he says he's for me. There's a decision for y'all to make. He says he's near to the brokenhearted. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not snuff out a smoldering candle wick. But you feel like you snuffed out years ago. Is he a liar or is he truthful? Is his heart the way he described it or his heart the way that some other thing has described it to you? Who are you listening to? Who are you believing? To believe, to doubt belief A requires faith in belief B. To think that I'm a sketchy guy or, or, or to think that you need to be on guard around me, or sorry, to, let, me put it, let me put it this way. It's a little bit simpler, the logic of it. To doubt that I'm a decent guy that you can trust means you believe I'm a sketchy guy you need to be on guard around. Does that make sense? Until you let go of this, or I disprove this, you can't believe this. You are holding on to this, exerting effort, believing this, making decisions to stay with it. Jesus says, and he invites you, stop disbelieving me. What are you listening to? Who has got your heart? Who do you think has divine authority to tell you the way it is? Believe in me. The resurrection and the life. Well, friends, Jesus says to all of us those words, the way out of doubt is to see him come to you in your doubts and invite you to fight, to hold on to his word. He says here, this should come of great comfort to you as as we end. Jesus told them, because y'all have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those, he's talking about you, who have not seen me and yet believe. Jesus is saying, I know it's hard. I know you want to see me. You will. I know it's hard to believe without seeing me. And Jesus is saying, you are the lucky ones. You're the blessed ones. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that y'all may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, raised from the dead, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Where is the evidence of the resurrected Jesus for you? It's in his word. Are you believing him? Are you disbelieving him? The fruits of his resurrection are in his people. Are you seeing it? Are you turning away? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that the gospel is an event. 
that you accomplished. It was a resurrection from a sacrificial death on our behalf, proving that you're the savior of sinners, proving that those united to you will live forever with you because you have beaten death. My weak and faithless friends like me need you to perfect the faith you authored in us. My friends who don't know you desperately need you to author and breathe faith into them. They may be captive and enslaved to their other beliefs and to their doubts, and they need you to liberate them. And so do that by the power of your spirit. I pray this in your name. Amen.